0: Talking history. This is news talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never
1: surrender.
2: And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for
0: man, one giant
2: leap for mankind. Augusto, Argus,
1: Good afternoon and Merry Christmas. We're talking history on News Talk 106 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. Hope you're having an absolutely wonderful day, and we're going to keep you entertained over the next hour with a special Christmas edition of the show. First, we're going to be finding out how the British royal family has celebrated Christmas over the centuries, and then we'll be exploring the women in the life of Jesus, why they have been ignored for so long, and what new insights we can get into the story of the first Christmas. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and views in the days and months ahead. We don't, of course, expect you to email us today, but if you want to, you can. history at Newstalk.com, but especially if you have ideas for future shows that you'd like us to cover in the months ahead and as we start a new year. And if you want to download the show, just go to uh, the Newstalk app, powered by Go Live or our website, Newstalk.com. Now, it was never a Christmas tradition in our house growing up. Uh, One thing, we didn't even have the BBC and I think I only saw my first uh, Queen's broadcast about five years ago but uh, many Irish people do like to tune in on Christmas Day uh, to hear the Christmas broadcast uh, by the British Royal Family and of course this year will be the first such address by King Charles III. Well, someone who has delved into the British Royal Archives to look at the personal thoughts and traditions of the British royal family is Jeremy Archer. He brought out a new edition of his book, A Royal Christmas, How the Royal Family Has Celebrated Christmas Through the Ages. It's published in paperback by Elliot and Thompson. And Jeremy, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you
3: very
0: much.
1: Let's begin, maybe, with that uh, idea of King Charles's first uh, Christmas broadcast. We don't know what uh, King Charles is going to say in his Christmas broadcast, but I suppose we could guess that a large part will revolve around a tribute to his to his late mother, Queen Elizabeth II.
3: Yes, I think I think we can. I mean, I, I went to the Festival of Remembrance, and and that started off quite rightly with a with, with a very large um section on 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 her late majesty and 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 he'll I'm, my judgment is that he'll start exactly the same way um but I, I think i mean i'd I'd leave you with with three words which I think w- will probably sum up what will happen so it it'll, it'll be solemn um it's bound to be solemn because she she was on the throne for seventy years so so there will be a solemn undertone um it'll be a little bit reflective because um, after all, during those seventy years, an extraordinary number of changes have taken place. I mean, it's, it's a- absolutely remarkable. But, but I think he, he will end up. Well, he, he might stop, but he, he will certainly be hugely thankful um, in public, naturally at Christmas, for everything that, that she's done for the country, for the family, etc. So, so he'll 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 end up on a on, on I would imagine a, a really high note, and then he'll put he'll put his spin on everything that's going on in the world in the same way that she used to do every year. Um, so, so last year, she, 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 she was looking forward. I mean, she was sympathizing with everybody because of what we'd all suffered during a series of lockdowns. And then she said how much she was looking forward to her platinum jubilee.
2: Although it's a time of great happiness and good cheer for many, Christmas can be hard for those who have lost loved ones. This year especially, I understand why. But for me, in the months since the death of my beloved Philip, I have drawn great comfort from the warmth and affection of the many tributes to his life and work, from around the country, the Commonwealth and the world. His sense of service, intellectual curiosity and capacity to squeeze fun out of any situation were all irrepressible. That mischievous, inquiring twinkle was as bright at the end as when I first set eyes on him. But life, of course, consists of final partings as well as first meetings. And as much as I and my family miss him, I know he would want us to enjoy Christmas. We felt his presence as we, like millions around the world, readied ourselves for Christmas. While Covid again means we can't celebrate quite as we may have wished, we can still enjoy the many happy traditions. Be it the singing of carols, as long as the tune is well known, decorating the tree, giving and receiving presents, or watching a favorite film where we already know the ending. It's no surprise that families so often treasure their Christmas routines. We see our own children and their families embrace the roles traditions and values that mean so much to us, as these are passed from one generation to the next, sometimes being updated for changing times. I see it in my own family, and it is a source of great happiness. Prince Philip was always mindful of this sense of passing the baton.
1: And your book covers the history of these Christmas broadcasts, and they go a lot further back than I thought
3: yeah they do um so so john john Reith, who 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 got the b b c going really um he he had the idea that that a broadcast would would be good and um, the king so this so we're so we're talking about about charles's great grandfather king king George fifth he had to be persuaded to do it um, because it was an innovation um and and he the first broadcast was in nineteen thirty two and it was it was made from a from from what he described as a a little room under the stairs at sandringham um and it was only it was only 251 words i mean it it was a it, it was a really short thing but it is estimated that it was heard by by 20 million people
0: through one of the marvels of modern science i am enabled this christmas day to speak to all my peoples throughout the empire. I take it as a good omen that wireless should have reached its present perfection at a time when the empire has been linked in closer union. For it offers us immense possibilities to make that union Closer still. It may be that our future will lay upon us more than one stern test. Our past will have taught us how to meet it unshaken. For the present, the work to which we all equally bound is to arise at a reasoned tranquillity within our borders, to regain prosperity without self-seeking.
3: Um, and 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 it continued, and it, it was a success. It was a good idea, and it's continued ever since. There have been one or two there have been one or two intermissions, but. Um, but basically, 19, 1932 was the start and we're still with it.
1: There are some uh, wonderful insights in the book. And I think the bit that stood out for me was uh, the section on World War II and uh, the Christmas card from 1940 of the king and the queen uh, alongside Buckingham Palace, which was partially in ruins after having been bombed. And it was a way of really connecting with the people
3: yes it was it, it was an unusual christmas card i mean there they were standing in front of the ruins it was it was in fact the ruins of the of the private chapel which incidentally was never rebuilt where where her late majesty was christened so so the the, the german german bomber had come down the mall and i mean they they could easily have have been killed they could or or at least seriously wounded if they've been standing in front of the windows at the time but they weren't but the key point just as you say is is that this was a way of saying sending that christmas card you know we're, we're in it with you we're we're suffering with you and and, and Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, later said you know, she, she was able to look the East End in the face. So it was, it, it, was, it was an important moment. It was an important Christmas card. They were connecting with the people, which, of course, they've, they've always done so well over the years.
1: And is it true that uh, the quote that you sometimes hear that they, they said they were glad that they would now be able to look the, the people of London in the face now that they had also yes. been bombed?
3: Yeah, no. I, I, it's but I, I, my understanding is it's true. Um, I mean, they were, they were, they were always out and about, just sympathising with people who were, who were frankly going through a, a pretty desperate time. I mean, at one stage during the Blitz, London suffered 57 consecutive days of bombing, and it and it, it started on the 7th of September 1940, and it didn't stop until the 10th of May the following year, um, and and some dreadful damage was done but but they were but they suffered with us the two princesses spent most of their time down at windsor but but the king was—he he was in the thick of it.
1: So let's talk about you know Christmas. We always think of things like gifts and food, and uh, there are aspects that you explore as well. Uh, what food would be served? In at one part, you have uh, recipes uh, from the from the different times, and you get a sense of uh, some of the the treats the
3: British royal family would have enjoyed. Yeah, I think when you. So I, I I look back. I mean, I, I started I started in 1066, but 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 that's only because the conqueror was crowned in Westminster Abbey on 1066. It was the, the medieval feasts were 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 huge and and, and frankly rather rather obsessive. Um, but they the, they they had big parties at Christmas. So medieval Christmases were were big events, and they had they had all sorts of of, um, of really quite exotic foods. Um, I'm, I'm sure, and I have absolutely no doubt, that all, all that has changed. So as you as, as you wind on into the, the last century and the present century, life is a lot simpler. Um, but there is an emphasis on on on, on having a decent meal. It, it's like the rest of us, really. You you have a good meal. You sit down together. It, it's a family Christmas. This is this is their private time. Nobody really knows what goes on. They do they do invite people. they they will invite members of the household but but it's their time Um, but they also give parties of course for the staff Um, yeah it's it's a celebratory meal, it's it's what we all do.
1: And there's I think the recipe for an empire plum pudding
3: yeah the empire plum, (laughs) it's it's quite fun there, so somebody dreamt up this recipe and then then it was printed and then it, it, it was sent round, yeah I mean this is this is all about engaging with. This is another way of engaging with the people. And there are some quite some some quite charming touches, But you're right. There's there's a there's a very precise recipe for the empire for the empire plum pudding.
1: And what about gifts then? What do you give the the monarch who has everything?
3: Yeah, it's well, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, the Prince Consort. They 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 were. They were absolutely meticulous in in, in documenting their gifts, and, and in her in her journal. Um, so the the German tradition was was something called Bescherung. So Bescherung they they exchange gifts on on Christmas Eve, and he took an enormous amount of trouble. This is Albert took an enormous amount of trouble, um, for either finding or indeed designing gifts for Victoria, and, and although she didn't design things, she put a huge amount into what she gave him and and, and all this is cataloged because all these items are in the royal collection and if you if you if you fiddle around you can see pictures of them but what what dear exactly as you say what do you give somebody who has who has everything so the the any the any observers christmas in the last century that i've got um there was there was some quite there was some quite funny gifts exchanged and some of them oddly enough were were hand-me-downs because somebody had, had had something in the past that they didn't want, so they then passed it off to somebody else. So, so in many in many respects, they sometimes it would appear behave a bit like the rest of us because we have all got things that we don't want and, and we might be able to to pass them off. Um, but I, I suspect that the gifts are largely are largely symbolic, but it's a tradition. They hold the tradition.
1: And you know, Queen Victoria seems to be a, a very important part of this whole story. Did she, in a way, help define how Christmas was celebrated in Britain?
3: Yeah, there's a bit of there's a bit of myth about this. So I think we've really got to look to Albert. So Albert, the the defining moment for our Christmases um, was uh, an illustration. There was an illustration in the Illustrated London News. A Christmas in, in 1848, showing the royal family around the Christmas tree at Windsor Castle, and, and the world saw this, and, and the world, the world loved it. And that was really that was when, if, if you like, it became common for us to have Christmas trees. Albert, Albert used to bring Christmas trees. He used to buy them in Coburg, so he he he, he was the, the Coburg family. He would he would buy them in Coburg, and they'd be shipped over. But actually um Queen Charlotte, who was George the Queen, um always used to have a Christmas tree um in, in her in her ladies' room at Kew Palace. So so that's winding the clock back a further fifty years. So the so the German tradition of the Christmas tree as opposed to the British tradition, which which was called the kissing bow. So we we, we did have a tradition. We did ha- we did have greenery in the house, but 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 we would decorate with what were called kissing boughs, and um, which isn't mistletoe. But of course, mistletoe mistletoe followed followed after. But it was the the Christmas tree, the the well known tannenbaum, the German Christmas tree, that really started in in the late 18th century, popularized by Victoria and Albert. People saw that. They saw that image in the Illustrated London News, and it sparked their imagination, and the rest is history, as they say.
1: And what about the Christmas tree? Uh, what's the connection there? Well,
3: the, so it, it, it's 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 it is it's the German tree, really. So that is a German tradition, and and they brought it in because, after all, Victoria was was German, Albert was German, many members of the royal family had been German. They the, they imported that tradition, um, and. Were, and it's a great one. And we keep it going in the same way that they that, as, as I mentioned, they have the exchange of gifts, as it's called Beschirring, which is a German word, um, and they do that on Christmas Eve. So, so they they've established a pattern which really we've all followed.
1: And what about? I suppose the book also deals with times of crisis, times of conflict, uh, Britain at war, and so on. That Christmas is, is celebrated in a different way
3: during those times. Yeah, you know, I, I suppose what I what I was at pains to to explore and in, well explore and explain is the fact that um, although the royal family do things on a different scale, they are not an ordinary family. They also suffer the sort of pains agonies and deaths that, that that we suffer and actually christmas of course being in the middle of winter um is, is a time when the weather gets cold and, and 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 old and old people die frankly so so they've they've been through it just like we've been through it and they have to cope with it in the same way i think the you mentioned you, you asked me about the nineteen forty Christmas card. The the, the key address, the, the, the best known of all the of all the of all the Christmas broadcasts was, was nineteen thirty nine, when George George VI, who really hated doing this and in you know, the king's speech, he had to his stammer had to be somehow sorted out, and it was sorted out. But he but he broadcast ab- about um uh, about the time of the time of the year, uh, the gate the the man at the gate of the year and and war had started, it was the phony war so it it was a crisis and and, and he knew it was a crisis and he was connecting with the people at a time of crisis so the royal family have have been with it they've had problems at Christmas as well
0: It is this that has stirred our people and given them a unity unknown in any previous war we feel in our hearts that we are fighting against a wickedness. And this conviction will give us strength from day to day to persevere until victory is assured.
1: And what about the First World War? What was uh, Christmas like during that time?
3: Um... Well, Christmas, so in, in terms of royal, royal Christmases and where they've been celebrated, um, since 1982, it's always been Sandringham. So Christmas will have been celebrated at Sandringham. But my my guess, um, and without without referring to the book, I can't specifically remember what they got up to in the First World War. It's important, of course, to remember that that um, King Edward, well, the Prince of Wales um, and the Duke of York, so the Prince of Wales, Edward VIII, the Duke of York, George the Sixth, they they were both serving, so uh, the Prince the Prince of Wales was in France. Um, he was certainly in France at one of the Christmases. The the Duke of York um, served at the Battle of Jutland, so so they they were involved. So my my my, my guess is that George V um, and Queen Alexandra were at Sandringham, pr- praying that their sons were safe, and it was it so they they as uh, as i've said a number of times that they were they were engaged they were as involved in many respects with the war uh, as any other british family so I think it would have been it would have been a worrying christmas for them as well all those all those wartime christmases would have been worrying I know a little bit more about the second world war christmases because they they got up to things then
1: Yeah so what kind of things would they have got up to then because the war went on until 1945 and you know I suppose the most stressful times probably were those first couple of years uh, certainly before uh, it looked like the tide the tide was turning but uh Was that a a time when I suppose the 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 royal family bonded with the public in a in a in a new way?
3: Well, I think the 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 important thing to remember about about Christmas, and I guess it's the, the same for many of us. People play games at Christmas. People people act at Christmas. People play. So the royal family are quite big into charades. We know that because it's it's been written down. But what they really what they really like, and Victoria liked shows to be put on by her household for her pleasure. And in the Second World War, the the first thing that happened at Windsor Castle was was a nativity play, but it was a nativity play organized by the headmaster of the local school, involving local people, but most importantly, involving the two princesses, Elizabeth and Margaret Rose. So and you rolled on from a nativity play to a series of pantomimes, Um, all at Windsor Castle, to which which the public could appear. So the the household came Mm. came for nothing, and then the public could buy tickets, and money was raised for charity. And and the starring roles were were held by um, Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret Rose.
1: Very good, and I suppose every family has its uh, conflicts, and especially at Christmas time, there can be fights and arguments, and all of that, and uh, there can be uh, embarrassments and moments of awkwardness. And you very much see that during the abdication crisis, when uh, things were a little bit tricky at Christmas.
3: Yeah, that that would have been um, that would have been a really really tricky Christmas. So 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 we're we're in December nineteen thirty six. The king, the king has just abdicated, and 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 a new king was on the throne, but he 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 didn't really want to be there. And I, I I mentioned the fact that he he had this stutter. He didn't he didn't like speaking in public. He he'd never expected to be king. And if you like, he he hadn't been trained to be king. So the Prince of Wales had had gone frantically all over the world, doing things, but um and and sort of showing the flag in the empire. And and all of a sudden there was a king who didn't want to be there. In particular. The Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, who became Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother, she really didn't want her husband to be king, partly because she she was nervous about how he'd cope with it. So I think it must have been a really, really tricky Christmas. That's probably one of the most tricky ones. And and incidentally, he King George VI, um, he he didn't make a Christmas broadcast that year. He did make one in 1937, and then he didn't in 38 because he just didn't like doing it. In fact, he said, "I really de- I don't begin to enjoy Christmas until I've made my broadcast." But I, I think December ninth, I think Christmas, nineteen thirty six, was probably one of the most difficult ones that they had.
1: Are there any traditions that the British royal family have at Christmas that might look strange to us now in the twenty first century because they've been uh, handed down from generation to generation that that might just look maybe a little eccentric?
4: Well,
3: it's it's, it's that's that's a, that's a slightly slightly difficult one to answer because it's private. But um, I, I did I did I was privileged to be lent a diary from from 1926, and and that's why when when I mentioned charades, I mean they 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 certainly in those days, but we are we are talking about nearly 100 years ago. They used to play charades. They 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 had fun. They 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 would play games. They would sit down and talk. They the. The, the bit that I really liked was, uh, and this, so George George V was on the throne. They were all in this big room at Sandringham, and they were listening. He had a he had what was described as a really smart gramophone, um, and and he arranged for the um, for the national anthem to be slipped into the music, and then he just sat there to wait. How long it took them to realise that it was a national anthem, and they and, and they all had to stand up. And he was in hoots of laughter about this so, so there's quite a lot of practical joking going on and certainly um the prince the prince of wales at one stage i think he i think he donned a donned a penguin costume and, and so but that's not really a tradition that i think the key traditions that 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 we know about of course the the walk to church on christmas day when 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 people their phones out and they and but they love to people would love to see the the Royal family walking from the house to the church and then of course there's the Boxing Day shoot. So I don't I don't think either of those are eccentric. Those are those are the two things that, that we know happen and um, the rest of it behind closed doors. So I I don't think I don't think there's anything there's anything eccentric. But the point is that they're there, they're there as a family, they're there together and they're having fun.
1: Okay. well, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us tonight to talk to us about how the royal family has celebrated Christmas through the ages. The book is called A Royal Christmas. It's published in paperback by Elliot and Thompson, the author, Jeremy Archer. And Jeremy, thanks so much. Patrick, thank you very much indeed. How have Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary, Martha and a whole host of other women, named and unnamed, been remembered by posterity? And how were they silenced, tamed or slurred by innuendo? Well, a new book digs into the biblical texts, exposing misogyny and offering alternative and unexpected ways of appreciating these women as disciples, apostles, teachers, messengers and Church Founders. The book is called Women Remembered, Jesus's Female Disciples. It's published in hardback by Hodder and Stoughton. The authors are Helen Bond and Joan Taylor. And Helen, you're very welcome to the show tonight.
4: Hello, thank you. It's lovely to be here.
1: And this follows on the the brilliant and very successful Channel 4 documentary, Jesus's Female Disciples, that you worked on.
4: Yes, that's right. That was, um, that was a few years ago now, but... Um, we were just amazed by people's response, you know, because about two days after the, the documentary, we were busily responding to emails and loads of people just wanted to know more about these women around Jesus. So we thought we'd better write a book.
1: So talk to us about these women then, because like, maybe start with one of the most misunderstood and someone who we've talked about on the show before, Mary Magdalene.
4: Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mary Magdalene is very misunderstood. I mean, you know, the, the older idea of her was that she was a, a prostitute um, and you know, a repentant sinner. Nowadays, I think people are beginning to realize that, you know, there's no evidence for that whatsoever in, in the biblical text. That's all just sort of, you know, a composite figure linking Mary with various other women in the tradition, the, the woman caught in adultery, the Sinful woman in Luke's gospel who um, anoints Jesus and sort of coming up with this idea of of, of a prostitute. Um, but a lot of people nowadays go with the Dan Brown um, picture of Mary Magdalene and, and assume that she was Jesus's wife. So, um, and again, there's no evidence for that at all either. So um, she's she's a much maligned woman. All kinds of um, people trying to work out who she was and what she did, but. Um, I mean the difficulty is there's not much in the in the text to to help us.
1: And would it be correct to describe her as a disciple? Um she definitely seems to have had a special relationship and and uh, someone who seems to have been involved in in burying Jesus.
4: Yes. Well, and I think one of the interesting things about Mary is that that she's mentioned in all four gospels. Um, you know, there's the, the various women mentioned in, in other places, but but she is one of the few people who is in all of them. So I think that does suggest that there's some there's some recollection there that you know Mary was a very special person in um, in amongst the, the the disciple group, and maybe what what um, what we have here is that um, a recollection that Mary was sort of the leader of of the female disciples. Um, Because when you think about these patriarchal times, people like Peter and the other uh, male disciples, they couldn't just go into a a woman's home or, you know, domestic area of a house and unchaperoned, kind of talk to a woman and put hands on her, baptize her, anoint her. You, You would have to have women doing that. So although we only really hear part of the story from the Gospels, you know, the male part about the... The male disciples going to evangelize other men, there must have been a sort of a, a parallel um women 's mission going to to, to women and um, and and healing them and and baptizing them and the fact that mary is is mentioned in all four gospels perhaps suggests that she was sort of the leader of of this group in the same way that Peter is the leader of of the male apostles she 's maybe the the sort of the central one here. And um and, and that then would give her really quite um quite a lot of prominence within the group. But yeah, I mean you're right too that um she's the one who's mentioned in all of the accounts of, of the burial and um and you know burial was normally something done by women and normally, you know, the closest woman to you. So um so again the fact that Mary was doing this suggests that she is in a very close relationship with Jesus. I mean, that doesn't have to mean that she was his, his wife or his girlfriend, but, um, you know, she is clearly the one out of all these women who sort of takes it upon herself to do this.
1: And there are also so many stories of women seeing the risen Jesus. And Why was that such mm-hmm. an important part of, of the stories? And and, and and why was that, I suppose... I suppose that it definitely seemed to be a, 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 there seems to be a significance to it.
4: Yeah, well, I think it's interesting that um that the stories of the risen Jesus are linked to women because, you know, women's testimony wasn't always respected in the ancient world. Quite often not, you know, women were thought to be uneducated and not very intelligent and a bit lightweight. So, you know, if you if you want to be sure of something, you need to bring on a man. You know, has any man seen this? And you do see this within the tradition, actually, that you see them kind of bringing on the men, and and the men are saying, "Well, I've seen him too," and that kind of you know reinforces what the women have have said. But the fact that the earliest texts seem to suggest that um, the first people first people to see uh, Jesus were these women um, does suggest that that it does go back to some sort of level of historical recollection. So. So, again, you know, you have women right there at the very heart of, um, of, of the Christian faith.
1: Talk to me about Salome, because this is a woman <laughs> who has had such an incredible afterlife in terms of fictional representations, whether in terms of movies or programmes or an opera by Richard Strauss or the play by Oscar Wilde, that this is someone who in a way, is one of the most famous of all of the uh, people from this period, but yet very much a villain of the story, the person uh, who was to blame for the killing of John the Baptist.
4: Yeah, well, there's there's different Salome's. That That's one of the difficulties. The one, the one that we talk about in our book, actually, is somebody that we know hardly anything about um, because uh, Luke mentions her as as part of a group of women who are, Following Jesus and and um, paying for the whole sort of um, enterprise out of their own resources, so relatively wealthy women who are um, sort of bankrolling this this movement, and we know hardly anything else. Well, we know nothing else about her except that tradition actually says that one of Jesus's sisters was called Salome, and um, and 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 we one of the things we sort of looked at, looked at was a a cave just outside Jerusalem where people had gone and sort of written messages to Holy Salome. And we don't know whether it's the same one, but it's just, you know, interesting that you do have um, these sort of sites where people go and they they remember um, Christian women. Um, but then there's a different, I, there's a different Salome, um, who is, as you say, the, the one involved in the the death of um, John the Baptist. She's never referred to as Salome in the New Testament, but she's the daughter of um, Herod Antipas's wife, Herodias, and so she's the one who does the dance, and um, Herod offers her anything she wants, even half of, her, half of his kingdom, and she goes and confers with her mother, and um, the mother says, ah, ask for John the Baptist's head. Um, so that's what she does and adds her own little detail that she wants it on a platter. Um, so, yeah, she is one of these sort of archetypal negative women. But I think I think what you get in the Gospels, actually, is is a common thing in patriarchal texts and literature and sort of patriarchal thought altogether, that women are either good and virtuous, you know, the virgin mother kind of character, or they're they're whores and they're everything that's bad. Um, and so Herodias and Salome and, um, you know, the, the Mary Magdalene character, I suppose, is she's traditionally been understood as this, this prostitute um, prior to coming to Jesus. So, so you get these sort of, you know, women are always one thing or the other. They're really good or they're really bad. You just don't seem to get much in between.
1: And how would you explain the fact that there are these different interpretations and different accounts? Is it something as simple as misogyny that uh, there's attempts to define and put women into their box when there are these accounts?
4: Yeah, I think so. I think one of the difficulties, I mean, well, there's there's two basic problems. One is that the, the Gospels are written in patriarchal times, probably by men, and They're not writing to give a social history of early Christianity. They're writing to tell us about the spread of the faith from, you know, humble beginnings in Galilee right through to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And largely they're writing about what men were doing and how men were taking this faith. And most of the time they sort of overlook what the women are doing. So although there are actually, when you start looking for them, quite a few references to women that the stories are largely about what the men were doing. And then you have that compounded by a second problem, which is that over the years, most of the interpretation of these texts has been done by men, particularly monks in monasteries. And again, they're sort of, they're interested in what the men were doing. And and they sort of treat the passages that concern women as sort of light relief, you know, it's not, oh, here's a little fluffy story about a woman. And, um, and don't really assume that there's any heavy-duty theology there. So I, th- I think those two things have sort of conditioned us so that when we read these texts, um, we often do sort of move quickly over the passages with, with women or, or we don't take them quite as seriously as, as we should. And who were the, the,
1: the, the healed daughters? You know, uh, fascinating about the woman with the flow of blood. Uh, who exactly were these women?
4: <laughs> well, we, we we know nothing more about them. I mean, this is this is the difficulty that we have: little hints, and you know, sometimes we get a, a sentence or a, or just one one story about women, and often they're not named. Like the woman with a flow of blood, um, we're not told anything about who she was, um, just that 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 she has this flow of blood, and that that would have made her impure. Um, because um, uh, uh, blood made you impure, and, and ordinarily you could sort of um, get rid of impurity, but if you have a continual flow, then this poor woman is, is she 's ill but she 's also considered impure and um, and so jesus jesus 's response to her is to touch her. And, and and if an impure person touches a pure person, then normally the impurity sort of spreads. But, but in this case, Jesus' purity sort of uh, cleanses her. And, um, I mean, the poor woman, we're told that in, in Mark's gospel that she spent all her money on doctors and they have just made her worse rather than better. Um, but, but we know nothing more about her. Did she follow Jesus after that? Did she become a disciple? Quite possibly, but... Um, we don 't know the sequel
1: Mary and Martha are two women who again get a lot of attention and you know the differing mm. approaches that they have. Uh, what is their significance
4: um well they they come, they again occur in a couple of gospels um, they seem to live near Bethany um or or at Bethany near near Jerusalem and they're um, raised by jesus and um probably the most famous story though is is the one in luke's gospel where where jesus goes to their house and mary sits at jesus's feet um while martha is sort of busy doing things and then she gets really annoyed and she says to jesus you know hey tell my sister to, to help out what's she doing she's just sitting there but jesus takes the sister's part and says you know she's done the right thing and um And I think that's a difficult story for a lot of women because many women side with Martha because, you know, the busy person, someone's come to your house and you think you ought to offer them hospitality, you think you ought to be busy. Um, But I think what, what Jesus is saying there, and actually the story has nothing to do with being in the kitchen or cooking or anything like that. I think the story is just simply saying, you know, there's a time to be busy and a time to be quiet, and if Jesus comes to your house... You know, maybe you want to sit and listen um but but again it is there's a reinforcement that it's okay for for women to sit and listen so so being a disciple um as Mary clearly is, sitting at Jesus's feet listening to to what he has to say is is given an endorsement by jesus so um so I think that that story does tell women that you know it's okay to be a disciple. you don't have to be somebody rushing around, you can just seeking mission.
1: Well, tonight we are talking about women in the Gospels and how they have been remembered. I'm delighted to be joined by Helen Bond, who's Professor of Christian Origins and head of the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh. And she's the co-author of a new book, Women Remembered, Jesus' Female Disciples, which is published in hardback by Hodder and Stoughton. Helen, can we talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus? Because you leave Mary till very late in the book, but yet (laughs) given her centrality to the story, I wonder... I wonder uh, why that
4: was. <laughs> yes, well, one of the things that we wanted to do was to bring to remembrance some of those lesser-known women and not spend too much time on, on on the two women who tend to dominate. So that's Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. You know, if you say to people what women were around Jesus, it's always those two. And so we wanted to kind of, you know... Um, not have not devote quite so much um, time and, and and attention to them, but obviously Jesus's mother is is important in all of this, um, and, and and whatever you make of the the birth stories and and her role there, there's also little hints that that she she was there towards the end of his life. There's the story of her being at the cross and um the book of acts says that she was there at the um, in the upper room at the time of the uh, at the time of pentecost so um and then her her other son james becomes the leader of the jerusalem church after Jesus' death so there's a good re- good reason i think to think that maybe mary and her family are there in in um jerusalem for that that fateful Passover, and, um, and and maybe by you know maybe she is um, part of Jesus' um, group at that time. Maybe she's one of the disciples. Um, it's you know we, we, we don't have much evidence for that, but um, but we're trying to piece together these these little clues and, um, and and to try and get at a different side of her story.
1: And is that definitely clear about James being the brother of Jesus? Because I know there are some in different traditions and different religions, some uh, believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, others, uh, uh, and, and suggest that these were cousins, and then others uh, show that there was a wider family. So, so how clear is the evidence?
4: Well, um, <laughs> yes, you're right, that, that there are different ways to interpret this. But um, I mean, I, I think it's it's fairly clear that um, this is these are normal brothers and sisters. Um, the the evidence that I mean, the, the biblical evidence that um, Mary was a perpetual virgin is is very. I mean, there's nothing there at all. It all comes from a second century text called the Proto Evangelium of James, and that's where she's um, a perpetual virgin, and that's where she. She marries an older man and um, Joseph is an older man who's already got children. And so that's why these um, brothers and sisters are seen to be sort of step brothers and stepsisters of, of um Jesus. But I mean the Greek itself just says brothers and sisters, so it's a normal word. Um, you know, you you can translate that as as cousins or, you know, kin's people, but the the normal interpretation, I think, would simply be brothers and sisters.
1: And given that this is part of our Christmas special, what what are the, the challenges around looking at the Christmas story and the different narratives of the birth of Jesus?
4: <laughs> well, I think, yeah, there are a lot of historical problems in looking at the, the birth stories. I mean, particularly the differences between Matthew and Luke. So, I mean, they both agree that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that he grew up in Nazareth, and they agree on the names of the, the mother and father, but almost everything else about the two stories is different, so you know only Luke has the the census and, and the trip down to to Bethlehem. only Matthew has the magi and, and the trip down to um, to Egypt, so they're, they're really quite quite different in terms of stories and and you know people have spent a lot of time trying to work out the historical basis of all of this, you know, is it historical? Because obviously, you know, in the ancient world, in biographies, in this kind of literature, great men are given great births and, you know, great miraculous births. So so this kind of story was quite common. Um, but I think, I mean, in the end, we how, how can we know about the history of this? I think it's much better, actually, to to focus on, on the theology and, and what these stories are saying, which is, you know, that a great person has been born, but, um, that they're using all kinds of Old Testament ideas. So particularly in Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, he's saying that Jesus is very like Moses. So the, the birth of Jesus sort of echoes the birth of Moses. And he's playing with a lot of imagery to do with King King David. So he's saying, you know, Jesus is like these great figures from, from um, olden times and luke is, is bringing in uh shepherds and and poor people to sort of say you know jesus is is born for these people, so I think it's a lot better to to focus on the theology and and, and what these stories are saying rather than get too fixated on you know did did these things actually happen?
1: Because one element that always confused me, even as a child, was the idea of having to go to Bethlehem for the, for the census. And it just seemed like a very inefficient way of gathering a census if everyone had to travel to where there was some ancestral connection, like that you would have had an entire population having to, to, to move around.
4: Yes, completely. I mean, we do know that there was a census in um, 6 CE actually, or 6 AD, um, and that was the, the time when um, the province of Judea um, be- became under direct Roman rule. And that was a normal thing, that you held a census for taxation purposes. And the whole point of it was that you, you looked at people where they were, you know, in, in their, where they were actually staying, and you looked at the amount of land that they had, and then you worked out how much tax they owned. The idea that you would tell people to go to a, a different city, um, to some ancestral city, and how far back would you go? You know, and and what's the point in going to Bethlehem anyway if you live in Galilee? Um, and 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 also Bethlehem, you know, but Galilee at this time wasn't under the census anyway. So so the whole story is is quite sort of mixed up. But I think. I think the point of it from from Luke's perspective is to find a way to get Jesus from Nazareth which is where the holy family live down to to Bethlehem so that he can be born in Bethlehem and that then underlines the fact that he is um you know the from the city of David so it's that davidic connection that's really important.
1: I wonder what it's like to teach students uh, these areas and I wonder do you find that there is huge excitement to see that it's not just a story about men and a Jesus surrounded by other men <laughs> or do you find that sometimes people might have very strong views and don't like their maybe their faith maybe um uh, challenged or maybe different ideas or perspectives presented
4: Yeah, you do get both both views I think, you know, some people don't like to be told anything that that might shake the things that they've grown up with but in my experience most people find it really liberating to find to find new ways of of reading texts and i mean i think particularly women once they start looking at at um the gospels or paul's letters and and finding other women there and 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 thinking about their stories and trying to piece them together you know they they usually find that really exciting and really liberating and you know, they see themselves in the story. There's all these role models for women that for some reason, you know, we're sort of programmed not to notice.
1: Tell us about Martha and the slaying of the dragon, because she seems a quite <laughs> remarkable figure.
4: Well, yes, I mean this is very strange. <laughs> so most of the most of the time these women are sort of not particularly noticed, but but um in certain places and certain times you get women who are you know, suddenly made into sort of really quite significant saints. So in about the 11th century in uh, France, there is a, a whole sort of cult of, uh, well, actually Mary and Martha, but Martha in particular is seen as this sort of virgin saint. And um, and she, she gets rid of a dragon that's terrorizing the area with a sort of a, a, a cross and a prayer. But she's a kind of a a female equivalent to to St. George. You know, St. George is is doing similar things at at a similar time. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's really sort of quite a strange um, thing. But but, um, Mary and Martha actually um, crop up quite a lot in France at the time. And there's lots of um, uh, grottos and, and churches and things like that commemorated to their memory.
1: Let's talk about Paul and his influence and and, and impact over all these things, because there are certain things that Paul says in his letters, there are certain things that Paul is believed to have said or is blamed for, there are things that are attributed to him, and he definitely seems to be a central story in how women are perceived in the early years of the church.
4: Yes, I think Paul gets a bit of a bad press, actually. I mean, everybody says, you know, oh, Paul, he was very against women, but... But actually, when you the, the difficulty is that not all of the letters in the New Testament that are supposedly from Paul actually do come from Paul. So most scholars nowadays think that about seven of them were written by Paul, but that some of them were written later on by, by uh, disciples of Paul late in the first century. And it's actually those later letters that tend to have the more restrictive comments about women. But but Paul's um, genuine letters, he he talks about women as apostles and disciples and teachers and leaders of house churches. And um, I mean, one of the most interesting things about uh, Paul is that in his letter to the Romans, which is probably one of the most important letters he's ever going to write because he's writing to a group that he doesn't know, they don't know him, he's writing to introduce himself, and he's hoping to come to visit, and he sends this letter, and in the very last chapter of Romans, he, has, um, he mentions a lot of people that he knows in the Roman church, and he says, these, all these people can vouch for me, and about a third of those people are women. This is just you know a snapshot of people he happens to know, so I think it's quite significant that a third of them are named women. But at the very top of that list is um, somebody called Phoebe. And rather than saying hello to Phoebe, he says, I'm commending to you, um, Phoebe, who is a deacon of a church at, at Corinth. And he says she's a deacon and she's also a benefactor to many people, including himself. So she's a wealthy um, leader of the church in in Greece who clearly knows Paul very well, and the fact that he's commending her to the Roman church seems to mean that she is actually bringing this letter to the Romans so I mean that's something that I never noticed when I was you know when I was studying theology um, as a as a student, nobody ever said to me, "Oh you know Paul sent his letter to the Romans by the hand of a woman, and probably in the ancient world she's not just Carrying this letter and delivering it, and then sort of you know disappearing off somewhere, she's likely to be reading it out to the to the church and probably explaining it for people because she knows Paul, she knows what he thinks, she knows um, his views on things. So when people ask her what does this text mean, she can explain it. So, so you know, I mean, I think that that really gives a different side to Paul. It suggests that you know he's not this sort of misogynist, but he is actually willing to, to use women and to, to trust a woman to take this letter and to explain it to, to this church that doesn't know him.
1: What about Tabitha? Because she's someone who you know, has a special role as a widow, doesn't I think appear in the Gospels, but is someone who appears in some of the accounts and seems to have a significant role as a disciple.
4: Yeah, she's, she's in the Book of Acts. Um, and and she yeah she, I mean she dies, and gets uh, raised again by by Peter. But but it's clear that she seems to be a, a disciple. She's got a, a body of women around her, and she's a she's a leader in um, in that in that area. So you know we, we we do find even after the death of Jesus. I mean in, in as the as the gospel is sort of expanding into the Mediterranean world. There are um, pockets of, of female disciples in various places too.
1: And finally, then, what do you think is, I suppose, the impact of this research and this new interpretation? How does it change how we should think about um, uh, the early church and the role of women as well as men in it?
4: I think it changes the the whole sort of mental picture. You know that the, those pictures we normally have of Jesus walking around the Galilean hills with 12 male disciples. Well, you know, we're suggesting that actually there's, that there were a lot of other women on the road with him. In fact, I mean, it's not just suggestion because um, the Gospels even say that. They say that women have accompanied Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. So so that whole mental picture needs to be changed. And um, it, it's clear, I think, too, that, that that women were part of this this mission. And particularly given the fact that early Christians thought that the world was going to end quite soon, you know, Jesus was going to come back. Um, and, and I think that kind of movement where you think the end is near tends to be quite egalitarian. They're, they're just using everybody, men and women, to get the message out. Women are apostles. Women are teachers. Women are missionaries. Women have house churches in there in their homes. So, you know, this is this is a a, a movement that is that is, is full of women. In fact some of the detractors of Christianity early on in the second century said, Oh, you know, they they're they're really a rubbish religion. They're full of women, you know, and that was a way to to um to, to say negative things about them. So um yeah, I think, you know, our whole mental picture needs to change so that we see this as a um a movement of women just as much as men.
1: Well, Helen, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. The book is called Women Remembered, Jesus' Female Disciples, published in Hardback by Hodder and Stoughton. The authors are Helen Bond and Joan Taylor. And Helen, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you very much.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of this special Christmas edition of Talking History. Thanks for joining us today and indeed all throughout the year. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, to Peter Malloy on sand. We've got more debate and discussion coming up in the new year. So hope you can join us then back at our usual time of 7pm. We've been Talking History. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.